0: That's kind of conversation between soul. That's conversation between soul and the mind. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my friend and co-host Danny Bessner. And we're very lucky this week to be joined by Zach Fredman. Zach is an assistant professor of history at Duke Kunshan University, which is Duke's China campus, the Duke University's China campus. Uh, he has written a book, The Tormented Alliance, American Servicemen and the Occupation of China 1941 to 1949. And we're here to talk about that book. And you all should go out and buy that book. We'll have a link in the show description. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for coming on the program.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Derek and Danny. You too. Pleasure to be here.
0: It's uh, we're we're particularly grateful because I know we're getting you at uh, the very end of your day. Time zones being what they are, so thank you for for agreeing to do that. Sure. <laughs> Let's start with just the a general kind of general discussion of the book. What what was it that drew you to the topic of the U.S. Uh, occupation of China and the U.S. military intervention in China during World War II? uh and where did you go for uh you know in terms of research what were you you kind of working with
1: so i lived in china for 5 years before graduate school so i i started my phd and i wanted to do something on us china relations but i i wasn't quite sure what and it was originally i think when i was doing a doing a course with andy Basevich on the cold war and i found out about the us marines landing in china after world war 2 and being there for many years And I, I never knew this happened. And so I was originally going to focus on that. And then I decided that in order to do that, I really had to go back and look at the U.S. military presence throughout World War II and the Chinese Civil War. And so I did research basically anywhere in China where U.S. forces deployed. So Americans came to China, to southwestern China, starting in late 1941. Uh, Actually, Even before Pearl Harbor, because uh, President Roosevelt actually authorized a volunteer air force under the command of a retired major named Claire Chenault to support the Chinese nationalist government under Chiang Kai shek. So, this force didn't actually enter combat until a couple weeks after Pearl Harbor, but they were in southwest China and in Burma shortly before the US became involved in the war. So I spent about a year doing research in China, mostly in Sichuan province and Yunnan province, where U.S. forces were during World War II. And then after the war, Marines came to formerly Japanese-occupied coastal areas uh, like Beijing, Tianjin, Shanghai, Qingdao along the coast and sort of in in northeastern China. Uh, And then I also looked at the the central government archives that are in Nanjing, which is the main archive for the Republican period from about 1911 to 1949. Uh, And then in Taiwan at the Academia Historica and the Academia Sinica's Institute of Modern History. So in addition to research in municipal and provincial archives and places where American forces deployed also did work in the United States and the big central collections in Nanjing and Taipei, and then uh, a little bit in some oral history collections in Singapore.
0: Uh, you, uh, you already alluded to this, uh, but uh, my, um, it is interesting. I think that this, to me, and I think, uh, I gather you would agree, this is sort of a forgotten period in, in 20th century, uh, US foreign policy, let's say, or US empire building. Um, I know, I mean, you know, people who have seen like the movie Pearl Harbor will remember, you know, Ben Affleck and company kind of flying over, bombing Japan and then ditching in China. And like that, that may be the one thing that people know about the U.S. military involvement in China in this period. Why do you think this is, uh, th- this period is, is sort of, or this, this particular episode is sort of uh, gotten lost uh, in, in, in history? Do you, do you, or do you have that sense? And if so, uh, you know, what is it that, that sort of has caused uh, Americans to kind of forget about this, this uh, episode?
1: Yeah, Derek, you're absolutely right. I mean, even during the war, the China-Burma-India theater was the most isolated theater. Only about 70,000 Americans deployed there during the war, maybe another 50,000 during the Chinese Civil War. And as the Oxford historian Ron Mitter, uh, who wrote a book about China during World War II, described, this period sort of got uh, lost in a, in a hold during the Cold War, and so, I mean, what happened is all these sources in China basically got cut off until the end of the Cold War. There was no access to this. So people were writing about it and fighting these political battles of the early Cold War, going back to that McCarthy period. You know, as McCarthy basically you know, blamed Chiang Kai-shek's defeat in the Chinese Civil War on communists at the State Department. So a lot of the historical scholarship during the Cold War was really a political battle over this McCarthyist period. So, not until the 1990s, with the end of martial law in Taiwan in the late 80s and the opening of some Chinese language archives in the mainland, that people start reevaluating this history. So, throughout the Cold War, the main American commander in China from the beginning of World War II until 1944 was a general named Joseph Stilwell. And he was lionized in both popular literature and in the scholarship on the period because uh, he was eventually recalled to the United States under pressure from Chiang Kai-shek in October 1944 because he being such a strong critic of Chiang Kai-shek's government for their corruption, authoritarianism, supposed unwillingness to fight the Japanese And so Stilwell's views basically became the starting point for English language scholarship about this period. And it wasn't until the 90s, uh, a Dutch scholar working in the UK by the name of Hans van de Ven got into sources and realized that uh, actually China you know despite corruption under Chiang Kai-shek had made major contributions to the war effort in both of the Burma campaigns and it still well actually had a lot of flaws as a military commander so reading Hans Ven's work on this was another thing that made me want to get down to the lower level, because basically he just reevaluated this story about Stilwell and Chiang Kai-shek. So what I was interested in looking at were the ordinary American soldiers in China, their interactions with the Chinese and how that affected the higher uh, politics or the larger politics of the alliance.
0: So I do want to get into kind of the, the details of this period, but I'm, I'm curious in general, uh, when you went into this project, what, what were your expectations in terms of what you would learn? Um, and how does that compare to what you actually, was there anything that really surprised you or that you really found to be, uh, kind of shocking? Um, and that could be on the level either of the, the material that you, you found, you know, in terms of the, uh, what, I, what happened or e- even in terms of, uh, you know, how difficult or easy it was to kind of find, uh, research, uh, material as you were, as you were doing the book. I'm, I'm curious just what your experience was kind of doing this project.
1: Yeah, it was quite difficult at the beginning going to China and doing research. And one thing I was underprepared for is all the sources being handwritten. And so, and then of course everything being in uh, traditional <laughs> Chinese uh, characters, <laughs> whereas like yeah. <laughs> whereas the study, I, I, I mean, I studied,
0: uh, you know, kind of early modern Iran or late medieval Iran, so I I have some sympathy <laughs> for handwritten the difficulty of handwritten sources. Yeah, that's that's a that's a bummer.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was tough. So I started out in in Yunnan province in Kunming, and it took me they. They hadn't really done any digitization of that archive by the time I got there. So it uh, it took me like a month just to get through these handwritten finding aids. I, I was worried I was never going to actually see an archival document. I mean, at that point, I really didn't think I was going to be able to finish the project. But but eventually I did. I got into it. And over time, I got better at reading these handwritten sources and then from there, I mean, I, I really got lucky in being in, in the Chinese mainland at a time of relative archival openness, at least about the pre-1949 period. So I never had problems with any archives except for the, the central archives in Nanjing. Uh, but there, because of some connection that I was able to make through some, some people I knew in Boston, at the uh, Yenjing Library at Harvard, who knew some, who had met some official from Nanjing who had come out to the Kennedy School for some kind of program. Then I was able to, to get access with this guy's help. But I think, out of big surprises, uh, there were a couple. I mean, one was just the, the level of mobilization on the part of Chinese, the Chinese government to make this alliance a reality. So training thousands of college students as interpreters to support U.S. forces. And these are students coming from the best colleges in the country, uh, trained by a lot of American educated professors. And then this effort to house and feed American servicemen in a system of hostels in accordance with War Department standards that ultimately by like February 1945 was the second largest item on the Chinese national budget. So that was like, th- those were kind of surprising, those things in, in the immediate research for the project. But then later on in trying to, to rev- go move from dissertation to book and do these revisions uh, was seeing wartime China as kind of this transition point in the history of American empire in the 20th century, and finding a lot of the, the scholarship on the post- World War II network of military bases, but then a U.S. empire in the Caribbean and in the Philippines, more relevant than scholarship on the wartime U.S. presence in Australia or Britain and these other allies, these other allied countries in World War II.
2: Why were they more relevant? What would you say, how would you frame this in sort of that larger story of the United States rising to world hegemony, which I I think is becoming what used to be called um, before the postmodern critique, the quote unquote master narrative of the period that I think you're even seeing people read the Cold War less about the ideological struggle a la Westad and much more about a a stage in the U.S. rise to privacy.
1: Right. So I I see the U.S. military presence in China is kind of establishing a framework for what Daniel Limerow calls the, the pointillist empire. You know, at the beginning of the war, Franklin Roosevelt is aware that this, this pre-war imperialist model isn't going to work. And this is one reason why he makes such an effort to get China included as one of the four policemen. Uh, but then when you see the, the actual military operate on the ground in China, there's not a whole lot of change. Like to take just one example, the way that jurisdiction works in China. So the U.S. has this extraterritorial jurisdiction in China dating back to the mid-19th century. They finally rescind that in 1943, uh, but the U.S. military maintains exclusive jurisdiction over all American military personnel in China. Now, this is similar to the Visiting Forces Act in the U.K. and in Australia, but with some key differences. I mean, one is that Australian and British police are able to maintain powers of arrest, uh, whereas Chinese police can't do that. And then from the very beginning, Joseph Stilwell, the commander of US forces in China, who also has a position as the chief of staff to Chiang Kai shek, sees that the success of his mission depends on uh, obtaining unrestricted command over Chinese armed forces. So it sets this model uh, for U.S. relations uh, with, with subordinate allies, particularly non-Western ones, throughout the Cold War, and, I, and really in, into Afghanistan, I think.
2: So how does China deal with this? I mean, this is the, the quote-unquote, last 10 years or so of the century of humiliation. So what does this mean for China uh, China's government about you know formal extraterritoriality, which just means, as Zach indicated that u s nationals are subject to their own laws in foreign territories might might end, even though it it, it seems like de facto it, it existed. What does the Chinese government think about all this?
1: Well I mean uh, ultimately it ends up undermining the Chinese nationals government and provides a tool for the communists for the Communists to use during the Chinese Civil War to attack Chiang kai-shek. So during the war, they try to justify a lot of things with comparisons to what's happening in Australia and the UK. But over time, as violent misconduct against Chinese civilians, deadly accidents becomes more and more of a problem, uh, there's real backlash against the US government. And in sort of another example where i think you see parallels throughout the cold war particularly when you read about the us military presence in okinawa or south korea what finally precipitates a backlash against the us military presence is resentment over sexual relations between american soldiers and chinese women so in spring of 1945 these these narratives emerge and one of them is emerges in official state media, you know, in Chinese nationalist controlled newspapers, that uh, it's criticism of these women that they call Jeep girls, because American soldiers are going around in China in Jeeps, so that these women are betraying the country by associating with American servicemen. But also there's a real panic, I think similar to what's happening in France at the same time, that Americans are using jeeps and otherwise uh, going around and raping so-called respectable Chinese women. So you have in the wartime capital of Chongqing, these these areas where American soldiers congregate, which are also the areas that are sort of most heavily controlled by the most powerful national secret police agency, the Juntong. You have basically these Juntong secret police looking the other way as Chinese men uh, start going after uh, American soldiers and the Chinese women who associate with them. And, uh, you know, this this leads to basically anti-American riots in Chongqing in April and May in 1945, uh, that ultimately the new American military commander, Albert Wedemeyer, who replaces Stilwell, has to strong arm Chiang Kai-shek into bringing under control. But then during the Civil War, it's uh, the same kind of resentment over sexual relations that uh, the communists are able to exploit so successfully, particularly after Christmas Eve in 1946, when two intoxicated Marines raped a Peking University student in, in Beijing. And this ultimately leads to a nationwide protest movement with an estimated about half a million people taking to the streets, demanding that U.S. forces leave China. So similar, we see this repeat again and again, uh, you know, in in Okinawa, particularly in the 1990s. uh, And also there's real nationwide resistance to the U.S. military presence in South Korea for the first time in the early 1990s in response to a particularly brutal rape at the hands of an American serviceman.
0: I'd like to take a few steps back as Danny always says, uh, whatever it is, it, it started earlier and it was more complex. So, uh, that's our, our motto here. But I'd like to, to, to take a few steps back and talk about the relationship between the U.S. and China prior to World War II. And I mean the, both in terms of kind of direct interactions. Military interactions specifically, but also because it seems like uh, some of what's going on here in, in your your narrative is uh, a story of kind of expectations being set up and then unmet. Uh, what kind? What place did these countries occupy in this sort of consciousness of the other uh, at, at you know in the in the pre World War II period?
1: Well, so the the main influence on U.S. China policy in the pre World War period is the missionary movement. And missionaries really see China as this ultimate target. So the historian Michael Hunt calls it this idea of a special relationship. Uh, It starts with the missionary movement, but basically gains sort of broad uh, approval among American policymakers, businessmen. So Americans conceive of their relationship with China as one of China following an American path to modernization. And really, I mean, I think this this continues on in in the post-World War II period into the present. So there is this expectation that China is going to Christianize, modernize, and democratize along an American model. And nobody pushes this harder, and I think to greater effect than the Time Magazine magnate Henry Luce who's born in China, to a missionary family. I think he has Chiang Kai-shek on the cover of Time magazine something like seven or eight times, you know, always emphasizing his Christianity and that he's leading the country to this American-style democracy. Uh, At the same time, there's this long-standing American military presence in China, which really dates to the middle of the 19th century. And there's periods in the 1920s where if you don't count the Philippines or the Panama Canal Zone, uh, China actually hosts the largest U.S. military presence on foreign soil in the world at some time. So you have Marines, Army, Navy, all in China, sometimes as many as five or 6,000 troops. Uh, of course, all there are protected under extraterritoriality. From Chinese perspectives, uh, you know, you see, they see the Americans as an imperialist, but I think dating back to the 19th century, this idea of the Americans maybe being less dangerous imperialists than other European powers, the Japanese that are eager to carve out territorial concessions from China. So by the 1930s, you know, as this sino Japanese war has broken out There's still this resentment against American imperialism in China and this U.S. military presence, but there's also a lot of people in China that see the United States as this icon of modernity. So when the war begins, or at least when the United States enters the war, Chiang Kai-shek has a model to look back on in the 1930s of having some successful cooperation with the German military, with uh, even with the Soviet Union. And so he really hopes for a military modernization along American lines. And there's other people among the Chinese elite, many of them American educated, uh, who want to emulate other American models as well. So there's pretty high expectations on both sides when this alliance is formed in late 1941. Can you talk a little bit about the the
0: pre-Pearl Harbor uh, interactions that the, the US has with China kind of after the the Japanese invasion uh, or the, as the second, you know, second Sino-Japanese War begins there are there's some effort to support Chiang Kai-shek. Talk a little bit about uh, what's going on kind of before the United States really enters the war.
1: So before the US enters the war, one source of resentment on the Chinese side is that there's a lot of rhetorical support for China. There's a lot of efforts on the part of relief organizations like United China Relief to donate to China, but the U.S. is continuing its trade with Japan, uh, including providing oil to 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 Japan that has a military use. And you do have this military presence in China before the war as well. And it includes Stilwell, who at the time is is a military attache who is observing what's going on on the battlefield in the late 1930s and comes across with a a pretty negative impression of China's war effort and with the nationalists. So he comes into this position as Chiang Kai-shek's chief of staff and commander of U.S. forces in the China theater, pretty much already having made up his mind from the nationalists and largely did this uh, from being in Beijing rather than any kind of direct observations
0: Let's talk about Stillwell. He's a a key figure here, but but something you you mentioned in the book is that you know there's been sort of this tendency to view kind of the Stillwell's relationship with Chang as the 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 overarching kind of dominant feature uh, of U.S. Chinese interaction during this period. But your research suggests again that, that it's much more complex than that. So talk a little bit about. Who still well was and, and what his relationship with Chang was. And, and then what you have learned kind of doing this project about where that relationship stands in terms of defining the, the broader U.S. Chinese relationship in this period.
1: That's a good question. So Stilwell is a career army officer who by the time of World War II has probably spent more time in China than anybody in the U.S. military. I think he'd done three tours by this time, including a tour as a Chinese language student. The army ran a Chinese language program in Beijing uh, before the war. And then like a lot of other soldiers, he'd spent time in the Philippines and uh, spent time also teaching in the United States. And he didn't have any combat experience. He So the main thing he did besides the China service was the training of American forces stateside. So that's his background. I think in the in the literature, particularly the Cold War era literature, talks about him being fluent in Chinese. But as far as I can tell, he wasn't totally fluent, but I think he had a decent grasp of the Chinese language. And his relationship with Chiang Kai-shek was certainly important to the alliance at the time he was there. Like I said, he came in there and immediately wanted to gain command over Chinese forces and poisoned his relationship with Chiang Kai-shek right away. So he came over in March of 1942. At the time, the the Japanese invasion in Southeast Asia had gone so well, they decided to go into Burma as well, and so Stillwell was able to gain command over Chinese forces in Burma. Of course, again, he's not, has no experience in combat or combat command before this. So Chiang Kai Shek wanted him to be cautious. He had command over his best units, sort of the last of his German trained and equipped forces. And, uh, but Stillwell disobeyed him, launched an ill-advised offensive without Chiang Kai-shek's permission, and then abandoned the troops and marched out on foot with a party of about a hundred other people to Burma. So at this time, Stillwell becomes this hero in the American press, you know, because at this, you know, the, nothing had really gone positive for the United States in the war up to this point but you have this 59-year-old general walking out of Burma with a small group of people so this gets lionized in the press right away while at the same time Chiang Kai-shek is outraged and thinks you know this you know if this guy were were a Chinese general he could be executed for this he abandoned our soldiers left them no plans for a retreat no plans to help get out and then Chiang's forces get absolutely decimated in Burma so from the beginning their relationship is is basically destroyed and never really recovers from that, and uh, so for the remainder of Stillwell's time there, he's trying to wrest control of Chinese armed forces from Chiang Kai Shek, and eventually it's in the fall of 1944 when uh, when he gets the chief of staff of the army, George Marshall, and Franklin Roosevelt's backing in trying to take control over Chinese forces, where Chiang Kai-shek demands his recall. So his story ends in October 1944, but actually the U.S. troop presence really increases, more than doubles in size over the last year of the war. And during that period, Chiang Kai-shek has an American advisor in Albert Weidemeyer, who's more the type of advisor he wanted, somebody more concerned with helping to build up his armed forces but relations continue to deteriorate among the men in the ranks at the lower level, and so what my book argues is that actually that that lower level story is really important and is really central in understanding why the American military in China ends up becoming this occupation force uh, that's widely resented by Chinese you know, wherever U.S. forces deploy, and ultimately. The resentment over this occupation becomes a key tool for the communists in their struggle to seize power during the Civil War, but then also consolidate power during the Korean War uh, when they harness memories of this American military presence and use it to justify this new war in Korea.
0: Let's talk a little bit about this—the uh, the kind of lower level interactions, the day to day interactions, uh, or relationship between U.S. soldiers and Chinese. I'd like to get into the the civilian, the GI civilian interactions uh, a bit later, but let's start with kind of the military to military interactions. In your research, what what sort of defined these interactions, and why did they? Uh, what were the factors that caused them to go? Uh, you know in a in a perhaps let's say not so positive direction
1: so military to military relations got a p- couple parts of this the big thing to remember in china is that the us military doesn't deploy any ground combat forces so the military mission in china is to carry out aerial operations and improve the fighting efficiency of the chinese armed forces so you have Army Air Force personnel at bases around the country, and services supply support troops. But then you've got a large-scale army training mission going on. And so ultimately, the U.S. military is training hundreds of thousands of Chinese ground troops during the war. Uh, and this training is primarily going on in India at a former prisoner of war base in Ramgar in Bihar in India, and then also in Yunnan province, along with some mobile training elsewhere. So the interactions are, are primarily with these, these trainers, these advisor groups, and their interpreters and Chinese units. And then starting with the second Burma campaign in late 1943, early 1944, you have a liaison officer program where American officers and enlisted men are embedded within Chinese units. And the Chinese units are doing the fighting and the U.S. military is helping them with logistical aid and arranging air support. So it's really when the second Burma campaign starts that relations deteriorate at that lower level because Chinese troops gain combat experience And they they get tired of playing second fiddle to these U.S. logistical and support troops, especially when the Americans are living in so much better conditions than they are. Whereas at the high level, things get bad right away really as a result of Stilwell. Stilwell's a very popular commander among his men because he's somebody that, you know, it doesn't have time for any of the sort of spit and polish, what, what Paul Fussell called the chicken shit about the military. You know, so people like him and have tremendous respect for him, and because he has such a low impression of Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese nationalists, basically everybody under his command follows that impression. And so they still will, and a lot of his subordinates are very arrogant to Chinese officers in dealing with them. So at the high level, that relationship is bad right away. At the lower level, the military-to-military military relations really deteriorate in the last year of the war particularly by about July, August 1945. Uh, they are violent confrontations between U.S. and Chinese armed forces almost every day.
0: Let's talk about the other piece of this, which is the interactions, kind of day-to-day interactions between American GIs and Chinese civilians. You, you already mentioned one aspect of this, which is uh, sort of relations between the sexes. But just on a, on a sort of day-to-day level, you know, as, as GIs are in these, you know, are interacting with Chinese civilians during the, the, the period of, uh, occupation or during the period when U.S. forces are in China, what factors kind of impact that relationship? Do we see, uh, you know, uh, what extent, to what extent is, is kind of race, does race become an issue? Um, and just sort of, you know, what, what kind of impression do the GIs leave with
1: people? Well, things start out positively when American forces are coming in in 1942, because this alliance with the United States does have one immediate impact in that the Japanese terror bombing of Chinese cities in Southwest China comes to an end. And that is a direct result of the U.S. Army Air Force and the American Volunteer Group coming into China. And when Americans arrive, particularly early on, they also have a positive impression from the beginning. These soldiers are coming out via ship on an extremely long route, and they're going through India, where they're encountering the worst poverty they've ever seen in their lives. And they usually start out in Yunnan Province when they come to China, uh, which is less densely populated in the areas where they were in India, and you know, kind of a nice environment. It's high altitude, low latitude, so you know, relatively clean, sort of like the Southwestern United States. And the Chinese government really makes an effort to make them feel welcome with banquets and performances of Chinese culture. But pretty quickly, both sides become disillusioned. With Americans, the the Chinese efforts to house and feed them really fail to insulate them from the poverty they see around them. So what i Noticed so much in a lot of the wartime writing in diaries on letters home was how quickly people grow disillusioned with China just because of how bad it smells. You know, with the the lack of modern plumbing and the use of human feces for fertilizer everywhere, with the poverty that they see around them. So, this tremendous disparity in wealth between China and the United States is, is one thing that's, that's driving this deterioration of relationships or, or deterioration of relations. And on the Chinese side, you know, the wealth of American personnel makes them targets, makes them targets for price gouging, for theft. So, after soldiers there for a while, the Americans really start to understand this in racial terms. And you see this again in a lot of the wartime writing. At the beginning, they're referring to people as Chinese, but after a while, it's all racial slurs as chinks and slopes. And even in official unit newsletters, things that Chinese interpreters would have been reading or would have been able to read, they're using racial slurs against the Chinese. And then, I mean, theft, uh, price gouging, these are real issues and American soldiers resort to increasingly uh, draconian measures to bring it under control, including authorization from the judge advocate that they can shoot suspected Chinese thieves after ordering them to halt. And then, of course, you know soldiers are interacting with civilians while they're on liberty. They have very Americans have very limited support in China. You, know, you don't have Red Cross clubs. You're not able to bring in a lot of supplies to keep people happy, sporting goods, things like this. So I mean, leisure time is basically soldiers going to cities like Kunming, Chongqing, drinking a lot, sleeping with prostitutes. And so there's a lot of violent misconduct, and then also a lot of deadly accidents. So Americans are seeing Chinese basically as all potential thieves, and Chinese civilians are seeing American servicemen as a source of physical danger.
2: So a question I've got, I'm sure you know, Paul Kramer writes about how the experience of occupying the Philippines really shaped American perceptions of of people in Asia, broadly speaking, and back in uh, the United States itself. How would you place what's going on here in that larger imperial history, that more long-term imperial history? Yeah, I think what happens in China is similar to
1: what Kramer writes about in the Philippines with this process of Race making. I mean, there are ideas about China that American soldiers have when they go over to China, but it's this this specific process of disillusionment relating to what they see in China that makes them that makes them racialize Chinese in this specific way. Uh, so, like this term "slope," uh, this this racial epithet that American soldiers use, that's something that's new. Uh, you know, they had they used terms like chink before the war, but this term slope comes in, and that's something that's new. And a lot of it is just this real resentment American soldiers have. They feel like they've come to China to save the country. This is the understanding of US-China relations that they would have from reading Time magazine, from the writings of Pearl Buck, from what they heard at church growing up. But then they go there and they're hearing from commanders that China's not interested in fighting the war. They just want to hoard American Len Lise to use against the communists. And they just see this population that's so desperate and living in such poverty uh, that they just end up seeing them as racial inferiors that are unworthy of American support.
2: So the process is similar, but are there connections Um, in the sense of if you're looking at the 20th century as a development of a particular racialized imaginary within the United States. So similar things happen, but how does it connect to what came before? Because of course, the United States, quote unquote, grants the Philippines independence in 1946. And there's a new relationship with Asia. And there's all talk about open door policies. I was just wondering if you could frame it in that larger story. Is it just similar things happen at different points? And that's that.
1: I would say, you know, the the Philippines, it's a different type of relationship and pre-war China, it's also a different type of relationship because the Philippines, it it is this American colony. Uh, They're not equals. And it's the same in China before the war. So before the war, there's limited interactions between these American soldiers who are there and the Chinese military. I mean, the U.S. military is there living this kind of isolated experience in Chinese treaty ports. Where they're interacting much more with other Westerners and uh, really only making observations of the Chinese military. Whereas during the war, there's this recognition that this old system doesn't work. And China is actually a nominally equal ally. But although The Roosevelt administration makes this effort to build up China as one of the four policemen, as an equal ally, and the army uses all of this language in their training material to send soldiers to China that this treatment of Chinese as inferiors doesn't change at all. And this has real resonance in China because from the perspective of the Chinese nationalists, they're fighting to defeat Japan but also to end foreign imperialism in China more broadly. So gaining equal treatment is really a central Chinese war aim of the nationalist government. And they don't get that at all with the Americans, despite these claims of an equal alliance.
0: Let's talk about, um, I, I'd like to get into a little bit of discussion of the, the U.S. role in the Chinese Civil War. So why don't we talk about Wedmire's uh, appointment? Uh, what does he find? It's in October 1944. He he takes over for Stilwell. What does he find when he gets to China? And, and what does he do to try and um, remedy the, the situation that, that Stilwell has left him?
1: So... On the one level, he finds that, that Stilwell has done nothing to make his job any easier at all. He's prepared nothing for him whatsoever, and he's kind of left there in this fit of rage. So he has that kind of difficulty to contend with. And then he also finds extremely poor morale among the American soldiers who are serving in China. Stilwell, as commander of U.S. troops in the China Theater and Chiang Kai-shek's chief of staff, should have been in Chongqing, should have been in the wartime capital. But he's spending most of his time in Burma, and in India, because he's concerned with commanding troops in the battlefield. So right away, uh, Weidemeyer sees that American troops in China have been neglected. So he makes a major effort to increase uh, and improve discipline among American troops. He also comes at a time of real crisis for the Chinese government, because this is the tail end of Japan's Ichigo campaign. And where they're trying to basically uh, create a land bridge to Southeast Asia, uh, knock out American airfields. But at the time when Weidemeyer comes in, there's real fear that the Japanese are going to push on to Chongqing or to Kunming. So he's got major pressure to organize a defense. And he also sees the bad state of things within the Chinese military. So he changes the system of command structure among the U.S. military in China, institutes a food program for Chinese armed forces, and then increases the scale of the training program. So all of this happens really within the first couple months of his arrival. And Chiang Kai-shek is pleased with the results. What is Weidemeyer's approach
0: or sort of the U.S. overall approach to dealing with the communists? Is the war is coming to an end? Uh, you know, this is, he, he's appointed, you know, just about a year, a little less than a year uh, before uh, Japan surrenders. What What's the overall state of play in terms of... Uh, th- the communists and and the united states kind of looking at this situation and going you know uh what do we what do we do here to kind of either defeat the communists or bring them into to some kind of uh, you know relationship with chang and the nationalists that can uh, uh kind of you know mute them going forward
1: it's a good question. So what Weidemeyer is unaware of is that the Ichigo campaign enables the communists to undergo their biggest expansion of the war. Uh, they increase the their, their party membership, the size of their armed forces, and basically move into areas of China south of the Yangtze River, the Changjiang River, uh, in the wake of, of this, the Japanese uh, coming down further south. So with Weidemeyer, he is a pretty staunch anti-communist. So, In the latter part of Stilwell's command is when you get the Dixie mission, where the U.S. Army actually goes out to Yan'an, meets Mao, um, you know, and there's talk about arming the communists, bringing them into the war effort, but Chiang Kai-shek strongly opposes this, and so this doesn't happen under Weidemeyer. What happens is Weidemeyer and Chiang Kai-shek get taken by surprise with the rapid end of the war, with the atomic bombings and the entry of the Soviet Union into Manchuria. So there's pressure from both of them to intervene in a way to help the nationalists seize control of formerly Japanese-occupied territories ahead of the Chinese communists or the Red Army. So the surrender orders in China explicitly exclude the Chinese communists. So the Japanese are to surrender to only the nationalists or to the Americans. And the Americans have built up this tremendous logistical capacity in China during the war with the hump airlift, which is the last leg of this air route, this Fireball Express air route connecting the United States to China. So they ferry hundreds of thousands of nationalist troops by ship and aircraft to places like Nanjing, Shanghai, Tianjin, Beijing. So really right away, the U.S. is intervening on behalf of the nationalists in this early phase of a civil war. Um, But it's it's a real but a limited intervention. I mean, the orders are to stay out of any fighting between the nationalists and the communists. And then right away after the war, the U.S. government uh, is facilitating these negotiations between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek, which start in Chongqing and continue with this Marshall mission uh, under George Marshall all the way to the beginning of 1947.
0: At what point is, is the decision made uh, by the Truman administration to... I don't know. Is there a decision to, to sort of cut their losses or, uh, you know, stop supporting the nationalists? I'm curious, um, you know, especially in light of the sort of who lost China discourse after the communists took over. Um, what, what role did the U.S. military play from, from let's say 47, uh, through, through 49?
1: So yeah, by, by early 1947 is when the Marshall mission ends. And so when the Marshall mission ends, there's a pretty large, there's a large scale withdrawal Marines, but Marines and, and the U.S. military remain in China all the way until pretty close to the end in smaller numbers. Um, but really by... By 1947, I think they've given up on the idea of any kind of larger scale military intervention to support the nationalists. Uh, Weidemeyer comes back to China on a fact-finding mission and uh, basically says that there's, there's no way the nationalists can win without more large scale support. And there is some pressure from the military to do this. But the Truman administration decides against this. And so it's in spring of 1949 when they can really see the writing on the wall that the nationals are going to lose where Truman orders uh, Dean Atchison at the State Department to begin preparing this China white paper. And so the China white paper was this big State Department publication that comes out in August 1949, more than 1,000 pages. And it's partially a history of U.S.-China relations that dates back to the 19th century, um, and then a collection of primary source documents, State Department documents, all trying to make this case that the responsibility for the looming loss of the Chinese Civil War lays entirely with Chiang Kai-shek.
0: So I think we're at a a good place to sort of uh, wrap up. Folks should definitely check out uh, the book, because this is a fascinating period, and I think, uh, as we've said, one that is not well covered or understood uh, in sort of the American consciousness. But I, I wanted me. to end. I
2: understand it.
0: it. Yeah, Stanley understands it completely, of course. Um, <laughs> I did want to uh, end with sort of wrap up, kind of overview question. You've you've talked a little bit. You talked a little bit earlier in the interview. About what this period, what this episode says in terms of uh, U.S. empire for the you know the the moving forward in, in the post World War II era, um, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. And also, as we sit here in in 2022, and the U.S.-Chinese relationship is maybe the the most important uh, in the world, especially in terms of trying to manage um, the. Glorious new cold war versus the need to cooperate on, uh, critical things like climate change and, and, you know, other international crises or potential crises. How salient is this period in, in terms of kind of Chinese consciousness and, and, and in terms of the U.S. Chinese relationship, uh, to the present day? Let's, let's take those two things as sort of our, our closing point.
1: Well, I think it's much more salient in China because this is a is a less forgotten period than it is in the United States. You know, there is World War II is central now to state sponsored Chinese national identity. I think that's been cultivated by the Party since the nineteen nineties. And in narratives about World War II, the United States is still portrayed mostly positively in China and that this is looked back to as this kind of golden age in U.S.-China relations, particularly in Yunnan and Sichuan province, where most Americans deployed. Uh, but, you know, with the, with the trade war starting under Trump, I think there's been more of a focus now in public discourse about the Korean War and, you know, this time that uh, the, the Chinese and American soldiers met on the battlefield.
0: Zach Fredman. Uh, The book is The Tormented Alliance, American Servicemen and the Occupation of China, 1941 to 1949. Go check it out. Zach, thank you so much for being on the program.
1: Thanks, Derek. Thank you, Danny.